0: As a business owner myself, the reopening of our economy suggests more positive things that are on the horizon. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we should reflect on the key priorities that came to light over the last 16 months that are essential to businesses' survival and longevity. Not all business owners enjoy managing their finances, but it's a crucial piece of the business puzzle that allows us to keep track of money that's coming in and money that's going out. Xero is a global cloud-based business platform that helps entrepreneurs and business owners house all of their financial information in one place and makes it available no matter when they need it. But beyond just being an accounting software, Xero is where the world of small business comes together. It provides business owners with tools to take care of the numbers so they can spend less time on accounting activities and more on growing their business and doing what they love to do. If there's one habit that we should carry forward from the global pandemic, it's to keep a consistent pulse on our financial standings. That way, we'll not only be better prepared to weather the next unforeseen global event, we'll be able to determine if our businesses are on the right path to growth and recovery. With Xero, your financial information is always up to date and securely stored in the cloud so you can access it whenever you need it. To find out more about Xero and how it can help you step up your accounting and bookkeeping game, check out the link in our episode description.
1: By saying, hey, there's this thing, some people have it, some people don't, it's called imposter syndrome, you are completely missing the point, and and you, you are leading people astray because then they believe that this is something unique to them, whereas all of us, no matter what stage you're at in your career or your life, there is aspects every single day that you feel unqualified for.
0: Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, editor-in-chief of Base Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? It is officially episode 25 and the start of a brand new season of the Mission Critical Podcast. Welcome back. We've had the honor of chatting with some of today's most incredible leaders who have shared their stories and perspectives on how to build a game-changing business and ultimately what gives them purpose, their mission. We've discussed everything from cultivating equality and venture capital with ClearCo's Michelle Romano and stopping the spread of infectious diseases with BlueDots' Dr. Cameron Kahn to tackling burnout culture with Arianna Huffington and why companies should pay for their pollution with Auburn CEO, Joey Willinger. The common denominator? That entrepreneurship can be a powerful way to imbue change into the world. Perhaps no one understands and embraces this philosophy with more fervor than this episode's guest. Harley Finkelstein lives and breathes entrepreneurship. As the president of global e-commerce platform Shopify, Harley's not only witnessed countless entrepreneurs launch their own companies, He's had a direct hand in helping them lift off. It's part of Shopify's bigger picture to cultivate a thriving and vibrant economic ecosystem by empowering entrepreneurs and the small business community. And they've got the receipts to prove it. In 2020, small businesses were forced to innovate after being hit especially hard by the pandemic. Many of them turned into Shopify to upload their businesses online. Based on the 2020 economic impact report, This digital migration resulted in 3.6 million jobs being created by Shopify merchants, with over 307 billion US dollars generated in economic activity. That was last year alone. It's clear that Shopify is looking to power the next generation of entrepreneurs and the future of commerce. On today's episode, Harley joins me to talk about the power of entrepreneurship, how to overcome imposter syndrome and future-proofing your business. Okay. Harley, how are you today? It's so great to be chatting. I'm such a big fan of your work, everything that you're doing at Shopify. It's just great to be having this kind of face-to-face chat through a screen at least today. (laughs) Yeah, Lens, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be on the show. You know, I was reading the Shopify blog and in one of the posts from early 2020, you mentioned that your grandfather was an entrepreneur as a new immigrant to Canada and your grandmother became one at the age of 60. What do you think are the most important lessons that you inherited from your grandparents based on your experience uh, on their experience as entrepreneurs?
1: So in both cases, for my grandfather, he was a new immigrant to Canada. My father's an immigrant, my father was born in Hungary, so they immigrated in 1956 during the Hungarian Revolution. They come to Canada, they ended up landing in, they came by boat, ended up landing in Montreal. You don't have any money, you don't know the language, you're a complete foreigner in this country. And my grandfather utilized this thing called entrepreneurship to survive, to put food on the table, to put a roof over their head. Uh, He didn't call it entrepreneurship. He called it a side business, a little little small business to, to do so. When encountering that problem, the tool that he pulled out of his tool belt, proverbially, was entrepreneurship. And then many years later, my grandmother, when she turned 60, wanted to be more independent. She didn't want to be reliant on my grandfather. And my grandmother decided that she would start a textile company. Uh, Montreal is very well known for the Chabanel garment district, Mm -hmm. the Shemata industry there. And so she started a little textile business. And so again, she had a problem. She wanted independence. She wanted to be able to survive on her own and to feel completely self-sustained. And so she pulled out this tool called entrepreneurship. I think the the most interesting part of entrepreneurship is that it's this incredibly versatile, almost as universal tool to solve problems with. When I was 13 years old, 1996, I wanted to be a DJ. No one would hire me because I was 13. I didn't know how to <laughs> DJ, but I just wanted to be a DJ. And I think because of, I, I had these influences and these role models in my life, I somehow got to this idea that what if I started my own DJ company and I just hired myself, And so the tool that I pulled out was entrepreneurship. And really where it all came together for me was 2001. After I started the DJ company, my family moved to South Florida. I moved back to Montreal in 2001 to go to McGill. And things got really bad for my family. My family lost all their money. My father Mm -hmm. was no longer around. And I needed to support myself. And I also needed to concurrently go to school, finish my degree at McGill. I needed to help my mom, my two much younger sisters. Again, I pulled out that tool called entrepreneurship. and I built a t-shirt business. In every single case, the problem—whether it was a problem of survival, or was a problem of independence, or was a problem of passion and and interest like DJing, or it was again survival—the solution to all these different problems for me and my family was entrepreneurship, and I think that. Because I had those influences in my life, it wasn't easy. Obviously, entrepreneurship still is quite difficult. It's not for everyone. It's not something that, you know, if you start something, you automatically become successful. But for some people, it is the greatest way to solve problems. And that's
0: the way I still look at entrepreneurship today. And so, do you have um, an overarching philosophy when it comes to your approach to entrepreneurship? Do you have a mantra that informs? Both the daily decisions, the micro decisions, and the macro decisions, and that you make as a company as well. It's quite similar to my personal philosophy, which is: um,
1: Do I have the right influences in my life? Whether it's role models, or coaches, or a board of directors, or peers and, and friends and, and advisors in my life, do I have the right people that I can emulate, that I can use as, as a soundboard? Are there are there people that around me that I admire, that I want to take a little bit from them and a little bit from that one, and sort of build my own strategy, my own version of reality. And I I've always sort of looked at that both in my personal life, whether it's when I got married to Lindsay and or we had our first child, I I started talking to people that I thought were really great spouses and were really great parents. More recently I'm I'm during the pandemic, I needed to find a new activity to get out of the house. And so I'm, I'm mountain biking. The first thing I did was okay, who are the great mountain bikers around that I can I can learn from, I can watch videos from, I can read their blogs. And in business and in an entrepreneurship, I sort of look at the same thing. I, I have, you know, monthly calls with Seth Godin because Seth is one of my most important mentors in my life, and someone I really admire, I think is one of the best storytellers ever to walk this earth. Finding those right people is, and that mentorship is, is one piece of it. The second piece of it is also the idea of failure. That failure is is really more the acquisition or the understanding or the the insight of something that didn't work. That when you discover something that didn't work and you're able to take that learning and apply it to the next decision you have to make, it means over the course of time you actually get better at these things. And I I think one thing that is missed about entrepreneurship today, and and certainly we could talk a lot about what entrepreneurship looks like in 2021, but is that the cost of failure is trending towards zero. And that means that for my grandfather, going back to 1956, if the egg, the business, I didn't mention this, but the business he had was he set up a little stall in the Jean Talon Farmer's Market in Montreal, which still stands today. It's called Le Capitaine. They, They sold eggs there. But if that didn't work, it didn't mean you know, he'd have a bad day. It meant that there was no food. It meant that he would not have no money to pay the rent for the roof and, and for the little apartment that they had when they first immigrated here. The cost of failure in those days was really, really high. And over time, it's getting lower and lower. And now when you, when you add technology to it and you add companies like Shopify to it, the cost of failure gets really, really low, which means that you can try something. And if it works, you scale it. And if it doesn't, you can try something else. And that I think is missed.
0: I think that's a really interesting point. And it seems to be a a very common denominator with a lot of the entrepreneurs and leaders that we speak to is this idea or this balance between progress and perfection and trying to always be in beta and always be trying new things out and be willing to make mistakes and, and experience failure, but also knowing that that moves the needle a little bit more. It's a conversation that I had in context to clean technology with Joey's Willinger at mm-hmm. Allbirds. And mm-hmm. then I just had this conversation with Hallie Bornstein at Reformation. And these are two companies that really focus on sustainability and, but always trying to make sure that you are experimenting and willing to make mistakes in order to move the needle a little bit more. And at least then, you're progressing, and you're not waiting for perfection because what is perfection? And perfection is boring, you know.
1: That's right. But also, like I think that's a great approach for business. It's also just a great approach for life. I think I failed being a lawyer. I went to law school not to become a lawyer, but to become a better entrepreneur. But I ended up articling, wrote the bar, passed the bar. You know, was part of the law site of Upper Canada. I articled in Toronto for a mid-sized firm, and I think I completely failed at it. If the lens you are using is did I have a long-term career in in law? No, I didn't. I left as soon as I possibly could. 10 months in, I was like, I'm done. And I I moved back to Ottawa and joined Toby to to help build Shopify. Right. I've never really said I failed as a lawyer because my version of what happened in law school, but also then in my 10 months of practice was just this accumulation of, of new information, this accumulation of new skills and new insight. Some of the skills... You know, I'm great at photocopying because of those 10 months of articling. I'm not really sure there's there's much transferable skills there, but law school was like finishing school for me for, for entrepreneurship. I was able to learn and think and write and articulate myself and, and debate and, and critical reason in a way that I, I wouldn't otherwise. And so if you sort of look at everything you were doing as the acquisition of new skills or new insights, even if the thing, the main objective did not come to pass, you move from a finite game of life and business to an infinite game of life and business
0: you know with that being said you know being resistant to failure and being willing to accept failure is important. But you know, you've said previously, quote, the biggest mistake people make when starting a business is they give up too early. So how do you know when to keep pushing and when it's time to direct your energy elsewhere, like your pivot from law to entrepreneurship? Where is the line drawn between perseverance and ignorance, I guess? Yeah,
1: no, that's a great way to put it. Actually, I've never thought about it that way. But yeah, there's that fine line. I actually think it's quite simple to state and a little more nuanced in, in practice. I think it's where you start feeling diminishing marginal returns. Mm. So for example, my spending another three months in the law firm, I wasn't going to acquire as much insight and experience and understanding of of how that world worked as the previous 10 months. There was sort of this very clear and obvious point where spending more time was going to be uh, disproportionately less valuable to me. And I think that same thing with an online store or any business for that matter. There may be a point where the business is going okay, but the amount of information, the amount of experience you are gaining will unequivocally be adaptable to anything else you're going to do. And if that is happening and you were learning a lot, I think it's probably worthwhile continuing on. The other thing to think about is, are there elements of the existing business that you can take with you as you sort of transition to version 2.0 of it? For example, you look across Canada, Lindsay, my wife and I are huge foodies and, and some of our closest friends are, are people like Stephen Bechta, Antonio Park, these great right. restaurateurs, these great chefs. And we think about what happened to them. We talk a lot about this, what happened in the last 12 months. The ones that we're most inspired by in sort of the food, restaurant, hospitality community in Canada, what we see is they completely transitioned their business. In many cases, their business looks nothing like it did. In the case of Stephen Beckta, he's three of the best restaurants in Canada. He is now full-time a takeout and a meal kit business. But so many of the elements that he learned about hospitality, he is applying to the meal kits and to takeout. And so I think that's a better way to think about it is, okay, have I exhausted all of the learnings from this particular path and when that happens, that's maybe when I, sh- I should change. But the other part about it is you don't have to also just do one thing. If you look at a, a company like Cotton, K-O-T-N, out of, out of Toronto. I love Cotton. Their team great is great. Great company, right? Yeah. Ben's amazing and incredible entrepreneur, great founder. But Ben is not only creating the Cotton brand, he also has a B2B, a wholesale business. He's also doing things on the side. He's he's helping other companies in terms of how they think about their own commerce and retail. He turned every one of his physical stores into film and warehouses. I mean, it's difficult to explain right now what cotton is, and it doesn't actually matter exactly what they are because Ben's vision for it is, I'm going to try a bunch of different things. I'm going to make sure the ones that work have enough fuel to scale, to, to continue to grow. And if one of those new areas of business doesn't work out, that's okay also. I think that type of resiliency and that type of perspective on business building is really important. And it just, it wasn't possible even 10 years ago because you really have to go
0: all in when the cost of failure was so high. Now, you've also shared your thoughts on imposter syndrome, which I think is something that a lot of entrepreneurs face, not even entrepreneurs, just anyone, I guess, navigating through life, maybe at some point in their lives. How can we do a better job of believing in ourselves, our value, our worth? Can you expand a little bit more on your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. The
0: reason I've called it imposter syndrome as
1: being bullshit is because it's not a syndrome if everybody has it. And, and, and when you call it a syndrome in that way, you begin to internalize it that I am this is a Harley thing, that no one else has it. I'm the one who's insecure. I'm the one who has imposter syndrome. And what I, I think is important to remedy that is to talk more about our failures, to talk more about our vulnerabilities. I have been very vocal in the last 12 months that, that those first couple of months of COVID were incredibly difficult for me personally. Mm. I'm a power extrovert. I love being around people. And being by myself with my wife and daughters who are the greatest humans on the planet, I still felt lonely. And so I've had to increase my coaching sessions, or uh, I've had to increase my cadence that I see my therapist. And I'm not embarrassed to say that 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 has helped me I've made walking with my dog every morning at 630 religious, I need to do that. Uh, I've increased my meditation uh, to make it every morning, I have to do this, if I want to be focused, and I want to be my best version of myself. And I think the bravado around success, I understand how it happens, but I actually don't think it's very helpful to create a new vintage, a new generation, a new cohort of other successful people within whatever category they wanna be successful at. Yeah, And the more that people that have a soapbox, that have an audience, that have a, a base of, of people that allow them to have some influence, talk about the vulnerability around this stuff, I think it all gets easier. But by saying, hey, there's this thing some people have it, some people don't. It's called imposter syndrome. You are completely missing the point. And and you you are leading people astray because then they believe that this is something unique to them. Whereas all of us, no matter what stage you're at in your career or your life, there is aspects every single day that you feel unqualified for.
0: We need to rebrand imposter syndrome and, and success, I guess. By
1: the way, that's just that's the human condition. The human condition is such that if you're getting good at stuff and you have a growth mindset and you're playing the infinite game of life, you're going to have moments where you feel completely out of your depth, where you feel completely silly or ignorant and unqualified. That's part of it. And getting over that unqualification and getting over that feeling silly, that is actually the key to this whole thing.
0: Now, I really want to focus a lot as well on the small business community, because that is some uh, community that has been so severely impacted in the last year. Mm. It's the backbone of our economy. It is the spirit and the soul of whatever, you know, everything that makes us move in our and the way that we connect with each other and move through life. So, you know, my family just started their business on Shopify. They launched their e-commerce platform because they've been a brick and mortar for 30 years. And so it's been a long time coming. But this was, I guess, the perfect opportunity to do so. What do you think are the key things that small business owners should know when it comes to launching an e commerce business, because it can be for someone that is not used to navigating that space necessarily, it can be uh, an intimidating and an overwhelming space to even try to look into, especially if you're a small business in a small town. Yeah, it's called the
1: quest gallery. Is that right?
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I bought something off their online store recently, uh,
1: this beautiful piece of art called the walking bear. Um, Amazing, really, really beautiful store and really beautiful products and art. Thank you so much. What your parents went through in the last little while where they transitioned from a pure brick and mortar business to being more, I'm going to call the multi channel. I know your parents don't call themselves multi channel, but that's really what, what it is, right? They began to realize that, wait a second, the way that people want to acquire our beautiful products may not just be offline. Some people may want to buy it online. Others may want to buy it in a pop-up temporary setting at some point when COVID is over. Other people may want to buy it on Instagram or buy it on some other marketplace. And, and and that's really why Shopify is creating something that is way more than just e-commerce. It's this way to sell any products anywhere to anyone, regardless of what surface that is. And and if you think about you know where things were sold 150, 300 years ago, it was the town square. And so the modern day town square is everywhere. It's digital town squares like social media and Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and all this and Pinterest and all these places. It's also on marketplaces like Walmart and eBay where we integrate with. It's also the physical stores as well. So that's sort of just at a high level. But in terms of the the thing that small businesses that are transitioning from traditional businesses, physical spaces to more of this digital, at least some element of digital commerce into it have to understand is, is a couple of things. First of all, While it is less expensive and more affordable to build an online store than to set up a physical store, where you have to, you need rent, you need leasehold improvements, you need inventory, you need a payroll to pay staff, it is easier to get up and running, and it is more affordable in an online, a pure online context. The one thing you don't get is there is no natural, organic foot traffic. The reason that people pay money to be on a beautiful you know to be a queen west in toronto or to be on sherbrooke and green in montreal or wherever they might be those very you know highly trafficked sought after areas of the city is because organically and naturally you will get foot traffic but you are paying for that foot traffic yeah. you're paying for that foot traffic by way of the rent that you are paying and when you move to an online context an online retail model you have to bring in people some way as well. In the same way, you're not paying rent, but maybe you need to advertise on, on social media or on Google AdWords, or maybe you have to connect with really great influencers or people that have a following so they can encourage people to visit you. Or maybe you have to do some sort of an affiliate program where you get other people to refer business to you as well. Or maybe you have to do a media tour and do PR and so people hear about you. But you're going to have to do something to acquire those browsers into your store. And once they get to your store, if you have a great store and you're using modern retail practices, which are mostly baked into Shopify at this point, out of the Mm -hmm. box, most of those browsers hopefully convert to shoppers. And I think that's what often gets missed. It's the reason why brand is so damn important. When you talk about Joey from Allbirds, or you talk about Ben from Cotton, or you talk about Kylie Jenner from Kylie Cosmetics or Nixware out of Toronto. um, When you look at all these different companies, The reason that they focus so much on brand is because brand is really important and very powerful tool to get people to connect with your brand for the first time, but also keep coming back time and time again. And I think what people miss sometimes in e commerce is that it it is not field of dreams. It is not if you build it, they will come. You have to encourage people to come somehow. As you know, I was one of the first merchants on Shopify at a little t shirt shop called Smoofer. And what we did was we targeted people. We were selling uh, licensed t shirts, Batman, Spider Man, Superman. And so we targeted people that were really interested in that. And we put up little banner ads and and we found the blogs where people were talking about the Dark Knight movie. And we would advertise there. we give a coupon code. And so I think that actually gets missed a little bit. And they assume, well, I have a physical store. People come in naturally. I'm going to open an online store and people come in naturally. You'll get some natural traffic just because Shopify's SEO is so damn good. And some people may find you anyway. But for the most part, the reason that I know about the Quest Gallery is because someone told me about it. And now Mm -hmm. I'm telling other people about it and other people will come too. But you need to sort of start this, this flywheel of traffic somehow.
0: Now, some of those brands that you mentioned, like Allbirds, Nixware, Cotton, these are all direct-to-consumer brands. And there's obviously a landscape of direct-to-consumer brands and also brands that curate other brands. In your experience, what makes a great brand and a brand experience, and also specifically for these brands that curate other brands, because they're also competing for the the consumer's attention. And it's a noisy field out there to try to attract people's attention.
1: It it is. And I think so let me be clear. I actually think there is absolutely room for great curators and resellers of other brands. I think what has happened, however, is that you know when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing swim shorts and the tide has gone out. and Now you see which retailer, which physical store or online store, which curator, which reseller is adding value and which are not. If you go back 30 years, let's say, the reason that you would walk into a reseller a retailer of other brands, is because they had a physical store. They had distribution in that that city, on that street. And so that was valuable. You paid them a margin, a piece of the the entire cost stack, because they had distribution. But then, you know, in the 90s, and uh, certainly early 2000s, the internet, e-commerce, it completely democratized and almost commoditized distribution. Now Mm -hmm. anyone can have a store. And some retailers thought about how they can continue to add value despite the fact that some of the brands they're selling, you can buy direct and others just kind of still did the same thing. They were you know, hoping that something magical ended up happening and it didn't happen. So when you look at a store, let's use uh, the Rosen family in, in Canada. If you talk to Larry Rosen, who's the CEO of the company and you ask him, hey, a lot of the brands you're selling whether it's you know, a brand like Hugo Boss or it's a brand like James Purse or, or one of the more casual t-shirt brands that I like to wear. Why are people going to buy it in your store inside of Harry Rosen as opposed to go direct? He would say, easy, service. And he's right. The reason that so many of us still go to Harry Rosen or our equivalent of that, even though the brands we're buying, you can buy elsewhere is because when you walk in there or even when you buy it in an online capacity, You get a chance to see a better version of curation. They know exactly what your size is. You're getting an education because the salespeople are incredibly knowledgeable, and it's an experience. It's a good experience, and you feel as a consumer that they are entitled to their margin because they're creating value for you. But that was not the case in every store. Walk into a large-scale electronics store and ask the store clerk about a particular camera and ask them about ISO and aperture and ask them about the shutter speed. And some people may give you a good answer. Most people that work there are going to look at you with a blank stare and say, I have no idea, right? So why would I go and buy that camera from a reseller when I can buy directly from Leica, where when I buy it on Leica, I actually can ask questions because there's a chat box and I can get great feedback and I can watch videos and it's this great immersive relationship. And I get to make sure that Leica keeps the entirety of the profit margin. And so I think there's always going to be room for more of these Businesses, these resellers that add value, and it's just this great experience. And so there's going to be room for it. But the idea of justifying your value on the basis
0: of distribution, long over. Sure. I also think it's establishing your expertise in a certain subject matter or area. Harry Rosen, for example, they're, you know, they've been in business for three generations now, I think, and they are kind of the go-to source for not just great men's products, but also just. Expertise and how to wear it, and and just have the conversations around the product too. I got a text message in
1: I don't know May or June of 2020 from Indy, who's like my sales rep at Harry Rosen. And he said, look, I know you're not gonna need sport jackets. I know you're not gonna need, you know, any dress shirts. He's like, you're on camera quite a bit and, and you're gonna need a couple things. And there's these great t-shirts just came in, these great hoodies just came in. I'd like you to check these out. I think you'd be comfortable. Hey, there's some slippers. Hey, by the way, there's some really cool bathrobes we just got yeah. in. Yeah, Like the, the thoughtfulness of that to me justifies and it's, it speaks volumes about why they are part of that future of retail, even though they're about as old school of a brand as you can get because they, they there's a timeliness to them. Okay.
0: kind of key takeaways, I think, from last year is the need and the importance for uh, being nimble and agile and and being able to adapt. How can small businesses train themselves to be more nimble, innovate, and problem-solve and and act quickly on a micro level? I like this idea of perpetual beta. In tech,
1: obviously, beta means that it's not finished. It's sort of in a state of flux. I think actually from a very a cultural uh, way, we sort of call it thrive on change At Shopify. You can use any sort of maxim or quote that you like that that explains it, but baking this into your culture from day one, that we are always in a state of change. We are always in a state of being dynamic. There is no stasis here because things are changing so rapidly. It's also the reason why, and this isn't a pitch for Shopify, but when you are a small business and you are selecting your technology partners, and it doesn't have to be commerce partner, retail partner, maybe it's your accounting partner, maybe it's your payroll partner, maybe it's your health benefits partner, whatever your partner is, find technology partners who are going to future-proof your business in a way that by being on with them, by being attached to them, they help bring you into these new vintages, these, these new eras of retail. And when you're on Shopify and you hear about this brand new social media platform that is blowing up that has incredible amounts of of engagement of users that is compelling the monthly actives are just skyrocketing you can pretty much know that if you are on shopify that that will eventually be Key channel that we will make it easy for you with a couple of clicks to activate that channel push to that. I mean, it's the reason why this summer we activated we, we did a deal with TikTok. Mm-hmm. Not everyone needs to advertise on TikTok as an e-commerce store on Shopify, but some people will find a lot of success there. And at the same time, we also did this a deal within a couple of weeks with Walmart.com because we know other merchants. Walmart.com is becoming a massive, massive marketplace, one of the biggest marketplaces on the planet. Making that easy to do is important. Or Apple Pay or Android Pay, this idea of accelerated checkout, where consumers no longer want to put in their addresses or their information in that way using their thumbs on their on their smartphone. Now with Shop Pay and, and all these accelerated checkouts, you know you're going to get those things. Just simply by having selected a partner that is very future thinking and very forward thinking about where things are going. That I think is also a, a second one. And probably the third thing I would say for small businesses in terms of that staying nimble and staying adaptable and agile, surround yourself with other people who are agile and adaptable. And a lot of the, your favorite brands, specifically in the DTC world, they're always talking to each other. There are these massive, you know, WhatsApp groups, and we're talking to each other on, you know, through Twitter DMs, and there's emails going back and forth, and there's always this incredible exchange of information. Now, if you're, you know, Allbirds and you're Cotton, you know, you want to talk because your ambitions match each other. You know, if you're an amazing physical store that sells beautiful indigenous art, and now you want to digitalize, there are other galleries that are also thinking of digitalizing. Creating those peer groups can be really valuable because what happens is when there's five of you in the group and four of you are, you know, feeling a little bit uninspired. One more what fifth person, the fifth entrepreneur may actually pull everyone in the right direction.
0: One of the first interviews that I did in my career or at the beginning of my career was with Michael Budman, who is one of the co-founders of Roots. And I remember one thing that he said was that has always stuck with me is like, you are who you run with and surround yourself with people that ultimately imprint on you and and help you, you know, create your direction and your identity and everything. And I think that's so important and, and such a universal lesson that anyone can apply to both business and personal lives too.
1: Yeah, and actually, Roots is a great example of, of the importance of brand as well because you know you watch what Roots is doing now. I don't I, I don't know when Roots was created. Is it '76 or '67 or something? one of those? I think. Yeah, um, I remember seeing it on their jackets whatever that year is they're still relevant. And why are they relevant? Well, I just bought this awesome new Roots collab with OVO. I mean, a Drake Roots Mm. collaboration. They're doing things that are just so interesting. And yet, you know, the brand has obviously staying power because they're always going into new areas. If you would have told the founders of Roots 20 years ago that they would be collaborating with one of the world's biggest rappers, you'd be like, well, that's not really our thing. But now it is their thing because that actually does make sense in 2021.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I want to zoom out a little bit here as well. We're Obviously, and still in an extremely challenging time right now, from you know, human rights movements to the business challenges that come from navigating a global pandemic, people are hurting. But you know, at the end of the day, how do we remind ourselves of our humanity as companies, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and leaders? And how do we approach business with more humility and empathy? I mean, business is becoming a lot more personal. Shopify is not just
1: my job. It's, it's, it's my life. My personal interests and my professional objectives, the Venn diagram overlap is meaningful. And I think that's the reason why there's an opportunity. You know, years ago, if you study sort of corporate business public company history, a lot of the people that were running these big companies in the past had very little connection to the product. They were a hired gun. They were quote unquote adult supervision. They were brought in to take the company from a stock price of $20 to a stock price of $40. You're seeing a lot less of that. I I was listening to a Clubhouse last night with uh, Daniel Eck from Spotify, Toby from Shopify, of course, and and, and Mark Zuckerberg. It was amazing to hear these founders of three of the most amazing companies on the planet how deep they understand not only their product, but their customer, and how in many ways these companies, whether it's Spotify or Shopify or Facebook, they solve the problem that the founders themselves felt. right, And that makes it all very personal. Now, there's good parts of that and bad parts. The less good part about it is the responsibility of, of companies to make decisions that previously just they didn't have to make decisions about. And that leads to things like Shopify's acceptable use policy. Which means that of the 1.7 million stores on the platform, we have to make sure that as new stores come on, that they don't incite violence, that they don't promote hatred, or they don't promote things that we just don't think are good. And I think 10 or 20 years ago, you just would have relied on the letter of the law. You would have said, well, it's legal, therefore it's acceptable. And it's not. And so we kick off and, and, and close down stores as we see them breaching those terms and that, that AUP. But the benefit, though, is impact. The benefit is that a company that was started out of Ottawa, Canada can actually create a movement of entrepreneurship around the world, can actually level the playing field for small businesses in a way that just was impossible even a couple of years ago. With this great power comes great responsibility, and you have to own that responsibility, and you have to be thoughtful about it. But the benefit is that the impact that these companies, that companies like ours can have, that leaders can have, is exponentially higher than our predecessors that were running companies, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And then the cool part about, you know, Shopify right now, uh, by, just by market cap perspective, is, is the largest company, publicly traded company in Canada. The reason that's interesting is that we can now help inspire more companies that not only build great businesses, that not only help hire great people, that have, you know, shareholders are happy with, the merchants and customers are happy, but they actually can have a long lasting global impact. That is a worthwhile cost of doing business because if you have to be more thoughtful about decisions that you make in a way that previous executives and leaders didn't have to, but the benefit, the, the flip side is that you also get to have a much longer term, a much more important impact on the world, sign
0: me up. Just as a way to wrap up here, what would you say at the end of the day is your mission and your purpose and how have you been able to get people on board with your mission?
1: Well, I start, we started the conversation by, you know, my, my background in entrepreneurship. And my, so my personal mission is I think entrepreneurship is this great way for humans to self-actualize, to create independence. I'm on the board of an organization called Operation Hope. Uh, John Hope Bryan the founder of it, and we're trying to create one million Black-owned businesses in America. On a personal level, I think entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. It's not going to be a quality of outcome, but it will be a quality of, of opportunity. And through that, there's all these really cool side effects, like more financial literacy for everybody, I think is a really, really good thing. On the Shopify side, it's the same thing. It's if we give entrepreneurs and people that have ambition the tools that traditionally were inaccessible to them and not affordable to them, what would happen? Can we create more independence can we create more of these great companies and these great entrepreneurs and then can they help others and, and create that sort of entrepreneurial flywheel that leveling of the playing field that idea of of Shopify's objective is not only to get more of the pie in terms of the total addressable market but grow the market itself and mm-hmm. create more people more entrepreneurs I think that is a really great thing and then you know years ago Nike did this amazing move they rebranded the term athlete. And they rebranded it as if you have a body, you are an athlete. Hmm. And that made calling yourself an athlete accessible. And I think what we are trying to do at Shopify is we want to rebrand entrepreneur. And if you have ambition, if you have something that you want to share with the world, you are an entrepreneur. And, And I think that is a very
0: meaningful way for us to spend our time. And certainly, that's what I call life's work. Well, that's a great, fantastic note to end on and a lot of really great insight from you today. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and um, it was wonderful and I hope we can chat again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Lance. I'm really grateful that you had me on. You may have heard that the small business community is the backbone of the economy, especially throughout community efforts to bolster local businesses during the pandemic. Here in Canada, small businesses account for 98% of our economy, making it crucial to the functioning of our society. It's not just some business cliche, it's reality. And as the shift towards online commerce continues on its upwards trajectory, Shopify is clearly looking to play a big part in that to empower entrepreneurs for generations to come. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?